Let's just open with prayer. Father God, we thank you for the people who have come here today. Thank you for uh, this opportunity to bring some ideas and a little bit of from my, my experience about um, working on a research ethics committee and just help us to be able to answer the questions that people really have and not just uh, go on talking. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so since we're a small group, I think gives us more flexibility. So that's good. Um, so I'll kind of show you what I have, but I would like your input too as we go along, especially in some locations here. Um, all right, so just to um, give you an idea, uh, my husband and I have worked in Cameroon for 20 of the past 35 years. And the past eight years, we've been in a Bingo Baptist Hospital, which is at the foot of this mountain in Bingo, called the Bingo Hill. Um, he's an internist and is teaching internal medicine residency program. As far as we know, it's the only internal medicine program in a mission hospital in Africa. There are family medicine ones and then the well-known PACS program. And we also have PACS in Adam Bingo. Steve Sparks, who's on the front here, he was the... Um, initial director of the PACS program until he went home. Uh, so we have surgery and internal medicine, and we've all those those uh, residents have to all do a research program. But our okay, I, I was asked uh, to talk about a research ethics committee, and that is the overall general name. But ours we call an IRB, and I'll explain about that here in a moment. Objectives. I just have a couple, very simple. First of all, why would you want to have your own local IRB? So I would like that you could give me some good reasons, and I'm thinking you probably have some already in your head, and I'm going to ask you in a minute. And then to be able to tell some of the steps that you need to go through to establish it, because that's how I understood my assignment, was to tell you how you could start one. So, first of all, there are many names for this entity, somewhat depending on what it does, but just different names for the very same thing or similar things. Uh, Research Ethics Committee was the name that I was given, also called Ethics Review Committee in many places, or Ethics Review Board. So you see how you come out with slightly different initials, and everyone likes to call things by their acronym, especially in Africa. It drives me crazy. And Institutional Review Board. In general, I would say that the first three are different names for the same thing, that and that the, the last one, the Institutional Review Board, is usually run by a university or a hospital or a university system for their whole system. So ours in Cameroon is called the Institutional Review Board because it is under our health services, which we have, which is under the Cameroon Baptist Convention. And if you're not real into taking notes, don't worry. I put a set of sheet, a note sheet on the website. So you can go look it up. Especially later, there's some websites I'm going to give you. Don't try to scribble them down because it's really hard. Just go download it. It's really easy. Um, so ours is called IRB. So if I say IRB, it's the same thing, generally speaking, as the Research Ethics Committee. The Research Ethics Committee would be more likely to be the name used by a national group. So a country might have a National Research Ethics Committee or a region, like maybe your province or state in your country, might have a ethics review committee for that region. Um, but in any case, the purpose is the same. It's to review protocols that involve humans for especially safety and confidentiality matters. And what you would want to do if you're setting one up is to follow international principles and guidelines. And the main three principles as far as ethics is concerned would be respect for persons, beneficence, so doing good, not doing bad, not harming people, and justice. And 
you know, if we were doing a training for you to be a member of a committee, we would talk about all that for an hour or two. That's not the purpose, but just to give you the idea and remind you why we're doing it. Um, the other thing that's, it sounds simple to keep in mind, but sometimes it's not, is the focus of it is just, number one, it has to be something involving humans. So when the researcher came to us and he gave us his research proposal from his master's class and he wanted to go and count all our garbage and see how we disposed of it, we could quickly write back and say, thank you, but you don't have to go to our committee to get permission. You just go to the hospital administrator and he can give you administrative permission. So if it doesn't have to direct contact with people, then it doesn't have to get reviewed by these, this research ethics committee. So I'm going to give you this long definition from, I believe it was WHO, just so that we get it all out uh, in the open. So we're talking about any social science, biomedical, behavioral, epidemiological activity that entails systematic collection or data analysis with the intent to generate new knowledge. So that's kind of the definition of research. And then the second part, in which human beings either are exposed to manipulation, intervention, observation, or some other kind of uh, interaction with the investigators. It could be directly or it could be indirectly through altering their environment. Or they could become individually um, identifiable through the investigator's collection of the data and how they prepare it and put it together, or the use of some kind of biological materials or records. So if you think through that, generally speaking, if someone just wants to come into your hospital and do a chart review, that's usually exempt from IRB oversight as long as they understand they cannot write down any identifying information from that chart. So sometimes you might need them to sign something where they promise that. Um, if they're a healthcare professional, they already know about confidentiality and medical data. So it, some of it depends on who the researcher is, of course. All right, so first of all, like um, our one friend, is it Andrew? Andrew is saying he thinks that maybe his hospital needs or needs a, a review board. So if you're thinking of starting one, first of all, really, I mean, it seems obvious, but you want to really determine if it's really necessary to do it or not. So maybe you guys can tell me some reasons why you might want to start an ethics review committee at your hospital or your university or medical school or something. Why would you need it? What? Okay, good. If you want to publish research that you've done, a lot of publications will not take your submission if you can't tell them that it was first reviewed and by an ethics committee or an IRB. Okay, what else? Yeah. So our students will just get a niche by the teachers on the neighborhood and on their door and collect a bunch of information. They can get very personal questions that they ask. There is nothing telling them to not have To not do it, yeah. Have any security for Right, right. Okay, what else can you think of? Right. And we're also doing qualitative interviews with their parents, which is involved a lot of medical history sort of stuff, which is needs to be protected. Um, and I think it's also helpful whenever we're enrolling people in the study, we can act, we can give them a consent sheet to sign that was approved by the IRB, yeah. so they know what their rights as a consultant uh -huh. are. It's very important. And then they take that home, and if they have questions later, they can go back and read it. But also, what I thought you were going to say was, we can tell them that a, a, a group has approved it, that it's ethically sound and safe for them. 
So just to tell them that that has happened is also very important. Yeah, our, um, our project is also it's implemented in a, a couple of different languages, and so we're working with a lot of participants that have historically not been treated great. Right, by, right. Um, medical communities that are involved in research, and so um, they're already apprehensive for some very legitimate Right, right. That's that can be very helpful. But why wouldn't you just send it to the National Ethics Review Board and let them do it? Well, most countries would have a National Review Board. May or may not have. Okay, he doesn't even have one. In Cameroon, it was basically non-functioning until somewhat recently. So... If you send it there, it might never come out of the committee. Or it would come out and just be signed by the chair, and no one's really even read it. So no one was really there to help you. I know when I did my Ph.D. research years and years ago in Cameroon, I remember I had to fill out all these forms and send it to Yaoundé, but, and they sent it back, okay, but... They certainly gave me no feedback, like anything that needed to be changed or anything. Maybe it was so perfect, but no, I doubt it. Of course, I've already been through the university here, too. So, anyway. Um, also, some um, schools here, like if you're collaborating with a university on this side, most often i found they won't review it until your local IRB IRB has given approval. And why do you think that would be? Right. They understand the patients. They understand the cultural setting. And they may have some requirements, like in your country, that in the U.S. they wouldn't care about. It wouldn't be important to them or needed. And it could be the other way around, too. So, so sometimes... Like uh, an American university will say, well, the patients have to sign all these documents, the participants. And we've had to convince them in certain instances that that is too much. They should be able to tell us verbally they, they agree or don't agree to do it because signing it makes them fearful that they don't know what they're signing. They can't really trust the document that they're signing. So it kind of goes both ways that way. Um, if you're involved and you have your own students doing research too, you really want somebody looking after them. Because what we've found in Cameroon is that either at one of the two big universities or many of the smaller schools, students just come with these proposals and sometimes they're barely even written and no one is really, they say they have an advisor, but he hadn't even read it. So no one has really been helping them. And so sometimes it takes a lot of work, which is not really the job of the IRB committee, but we end up helping a lot of people. But when it's your own students in your own nursing school or something, then you really are trying to help them get a protocol that's worth doing, because otherwise it's just a waste of time. And many people would say it's unethical to do poor research that isn't well planned out because you're coming out with something you call results, but it's meaningless. All right, very good. So that's some good reasons why you want to begin a committee in your place. And the reason I make a big deal of this is that it's really a lot of work. So don't do it unless you really have to because it can be a huge amount of work. Okay, so the next thing, I think you need to think about, do you have enough qualified people to be on this committee, or do you have people that are interested enough? You can talk them into learning, you know, the quality, um, qualifications they need, and will you need somebody above you that's going to support it, whether it's your hospital administrator, your health services administrator, um, maybe the chief medical officer in your hospital, 
these people need to understand the need and to also get behind you. So that's very important because it gives you clout for the board or the committee. Um, so step three, identify and recruit some interested people, likely members, who would be good to be on this committee or this board for you. And you will find when you go to look at guidelines for setting up your board, um, it's very important to have a, a variety of members, multidisciplinarian, um, scientific and non-scientific, male-female balance, uh, you need some community, mem community members. You need some affiliated with your uni university or hospital, some that are not affiliated, and different ages, that kind of variety. So on our committee in Cameroon, we have, oh, I think four doctors, um, two community members. We have a head chaplain who's doctorate is in counseling and family counseling, that kind of thing. Um, we have a scientist that is a, I think, molecular biology or something rather, uh, university professor from the big uh, university in Yaoundé, a cultural anthropologist, um, the director of our nurses and other trainings, health training school, um, a hospital administrator, a director of nursing in a different hospital, a hospital administrator in a different hospital. So all these people, they're, they're different ages. Some are women, some are men. Um, some are totally non-scientific, like one of the community members is a principal in a secondary school, and the other one is a retired nurse midwife. Yes? In the very, very beginning, I don't know, I think they were appointed by our health director. I'm not sure. I wasn't there in the very beginning, so I'm telling you how to start it, but I wasn't really there. But, um, and now the way they're chosen is people on the board can make recommendations, our health director can make recommendations, and then we ask if they will be interested. So it's not like they're voted on or a popularity thing. It's more that they're chosen to get this balance that we need. Yes? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, nobody is going to really say it's not good enough, but if you get recognized by a couple of groups that I'll mention toward the end, then you will fill out a form that says, um, like it has a column for um, affiliated with the, with the institution or not affiliated, scientific or not male, female, and then you tell their discipline. So they could look at that and see if things are really, like if you had 15 members and only one was a woman, they, I think they could reject your application. But I don't know because mine was set up when I became the chair of it. So, so they have to go through like application process too. For that accreditation or recognition, yes. But... If you, if you just even see what the categories are that they're looking at, you'll be able to find those people more than you think. Because the point is that not everybody should be a medical doctor or nurse, but not everybody should be non-medical. And in our bylaws, like our policy and procedure, we have as part of the quorum that we can't have a meeting if there's not at least one medical doctor there. And once we, that almost happened. <laughs> but, yeah. So it's, it's mostly the variety, the multidisciplinary, um, so that different disciplines are represented. I think that's the important part. Okay, then at some point, and these little steps, I mean, I made them up, you know. 
it's not always going to be in this very order, so don't, I'm not like, giving you rules, but at some point there, you're going to need to have an informational meeting, get stakeholders, people that are really interested together, and talk about it. And if you've invited people that you hope will be the members, you know, get a commitment if they will do it. In some locations, people might not want to volunteer for things, but if your health director asks them to do it, then they will, of course, say yes and do it very happily, or at least they'll do it. Um, depends on how you're, where you're living, how it is. Like where we are, it, things are very hierarchical. And so if the person at the top asks somebody else to do something, you don't say no, you do it. Even if you don't want to do it, you try. So the way you go about getting your members will depend on where you live. In other places, it, it may be more of a consensus kind of thing. So y you know your culture where you're working. So anyway, but at some point, you have to figure out who these potential members are, okay? That's what she means, too, when she's talking about who's going to be backing you for setting it up. Yeah. Because that person is going to be responsible for making sure you get the people. Right, right. We're all just nobodies in the system, you know. Right, right. And that also gives the ones that are employed by the institution the time off to go do the work because they're told to do it. It's part of their job now. Although a lot of the work they end up doing is after hours, truthfully. But still, if they could finagle time from seeing patients, they could be doing our reviews. All right. Then at some point, you have to develop a, a policy and procedure manual or your standard operating procedures or whatever you want to call it, your guidelines that you're going to go by to have your meetings. And one of the um, uh, online documents that I give you, um, it has some, a sample. And you can do searches. You know, you can do Google searches as good as I can or better and find other samples to kind of go by. So I'm not going to go into that part at all. But it is very important because you need to know, oh, do we have enough members to make a quorum? We don't know. What's a quorum? Because we never talked about it. Or um, what's exactly the procedure that the meeting should go through? What do we do first and next and next? Or when somebody sends in a protocol what happens to it? What's the procedure to go through? So you need to figure all those things out. But these guidelines will help you a lot. And then you need to obviously train your new members. And here are a couple of the best uh, training resources that, that I've found. The second one is the one we used, first of all, for the first several years. It was in a big notebook, and it had a... CD with it, and it had slides. I think it originally had uh, overhead projector papers. Um, it's now in its second edition, and I used the first edition one. The second edition hasn't changed a lot, but they've changed, updated the slides and everything. So uh, you can get that, download it online. It's free from the Family Health International. I don't I never heard of the people before I was given the big, thick notebook. But they do a lot of stuff on family health and family planning around the world. Um, the, the one on the top from uh, an organization that we call TREE, Training and Resources in Research Ethics Evaluation, is an online modular course to train research ethics committee members. And... Um, it's more, I think it's harder than this one. And after I'd done this one and I taught it at least twice, we found out about this tree one. And so we asked all our people to do the modules on their own. It was kind of like a review for them. And so when I did mine, I remember being kind of angry every now and then, thinking that the answer they said that was correct, I didn't agree that it was really the correct answer, 
or that the way the question was stated um, confused you and you didn't know which answer they were looking for. So it's, I think it's a little bit harder and a little bit, I guess, trickier is what I'm saying. But it's very good. And both of them have case studies, and then you think about what you should do in this case, and then it, they give you feedback on it. So it's, it's really quite, quite well done, both of them. But you get, um, both of them will give you a certificate. The, this one, you get the certificate at the end of all the training. And then this one, you get it for each module that you do. There are three main modules and I think two more. And then it also has some modules for certain countries of things that are maybe different in that country or something. Not, there are not very many other countries. Uh, maybe, well, I don't know, not more than ten, I don't think. Okay. And training is going to take you, like, at least a long day of training the first time. And then afterward, you need to keep training. <coughs> this is something that I never really thought about at first. But it's very important that you educate the people that are going to help you um, ensure that people aren't doing research without getting it approved. So the hospital administrators, the director of nursing, the even like the head of departments, like the head nurse in women's ward, all of those people, um, and, and, and the people like your other hospitals maybe that are using your research ethics committee review process. Because when somebody comes there from some other school and says, I want to do my research here, they need to know they have to send them to you. Okay? So it's really important to get those people on board with you to understand how important it is and that they shouldn't just let people collect data at their hospital without it coming through the board. Okay, step eight. Um, unless you're only going to do a couple a year, you need to get a secretary, some kind of secretarial help, and you need to think through the logistics of where are you going to store these files? What kind of format are you going to store them in? How are you going to do it? How are you going to keep them uh, locked up so that things are confidential? Um, and then train that secretarial help. It can be that that secretary becomes the administrator or administrative assistant. That's what you would like to do because you probably don't have time to do it all yourself. And you want to be able to turn over as much as possible to her. So my assistant um, has a decent amount of education, is very good, and Zeta. And now there was a group in our country that has gotten some kind of grant. I don't know even remember who it was from. I think the European Union to develop research ethics committees in countries, in less developed countries. So they've had at least three different workshops for the past three years. And so the first one I sent her to because it was in the capital city. city. Uh, Cameron is bilingual French-English, and I am not good at French at all, but she is. So I sent her because it was going to be in Yaoundé, which is mostly French. And... Then I realized, well, I did it because I didn't really want to go and sit there and not be able to understand what's going on. But I realized the other, oh, don't worry, the other benefit from it was it was really bringing her up and teaching her many things. So she came back, shared with me ideas she learned, but it gave her more status. So she's been to three of them now. And so she can do almost everything I can do, which is what you want if you end up being the chairperson of this committee that you're behind getting done. Um, so uh, really acknowledging your local um, coworkers is really important. And like when she got a certificate from going to one of these little meetings, 
I got it from her, and at the next IRB meeting, I gave it to her in front of everyone. And, of course, you know, she was very proud, and somebody came and took a picture, and it got into the newspaper, and, you know. But just acknowledging the part that other people are playing is very important. I think they really appreciate it. All right. Now, this is the part that I was referring to earlier. In most cases, I think that you would want to register your REC or your IRB probably with your local government department, although I think that works differently in different countries. But you might have a ministry of higher education or something that they want to know about it. Um, But also with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And the reason is to register with them and also to get the federal-wide assurance. So these are two separate steps or separate things, but they're kind of connected. The reason is that even if you're starting out really small, you'll be surprised that in a few years you may have somebody from Mayo Clinic or University of somewhere that wants to come and do some research in your hospital because you have this wonderful data from a less developed country and they have master's students or PhD students that need somewhere to go and do something, they can help you look at what's going on and it can really help patient care and you can help them because you've got the patients. So they may have an NIH grant for some of this research or a grant from their big university that won't let them do it there or won't recognize your IRB or REC unless you are registered here and have the federal-wide assurance. And this assurance is basically it's saying that you are going by the international standards for ethical guidelines in research that you will respect humans, respect their autonomy, um, minimize any harm that's possible, maximize benefit to each participant, those kind of things. So those are the benefits from registering it. And it doesn't cost anything. You just have to kind of fill out a bunch of paperwork. It's not too bad. And every maybe three years you renew it. But the one that's the um, the one from the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, this this stands for Office of Human Research Protection, and that one will is where there was the chart that you fill out that told um, um, like if people work for the institution or not, if they're male or female, all that, and so that even helps you really remember those things when you're getting your members. Okay? Any question here? Just download the, and you can get the website and look it up. So this one website gives you links to all the other, both of them. Mm -hmm. All right. Then you've trained people, you got registered, you're ready to go. All right? So you accept your first protocols to get reviewed. Generally, the guideline is you send that protocol with all the documents that go with it to two people to review it. And then when you have your big meeting, the whole group will vote on it. Um, But if you're a smaller REC, you don't have that many meetings every year. Because, like, our members are in different cities. So we ask for all the protocols electronically, and we email it to the members and you may or may not know, some research can be expedited. The review can be expedited. So if it meets a certain qualifications, it's very low risk, and it's not with vulnerable population like the children, then you can often expedite it, and that means one member or two, if you wish, and the chairperson review it, get it up to par if there's something missing, and then they can give permission to start this work then it still goes to the full committee when you have your next meeting to be finally approved. And so far, we've only one time 
been kind of reprimanded for review for approving something that the whole committee said wasn't ready for approval. And, and interestingly, that just happened in January. I'm like, really? After all these years, I didn't like think of something that the other people did that they didn't like about the research. It was a surprise to me. I guess you start feeling more confident after, as you go along. Okay. And then the last slide, although I have a couple other things to say, but the last slide is just kind of a suggestion to um, the first time you have your big meeting to review some protocols, use that time for teaching. Probably you wouldn't have very many protocols to review the first time, maybe two or three. So uh, I got this idea from someone else is think about all those main things that they've learned already and go through them with the protocol, at least one of the protocols that you're looking at. So make them think about are the risk minimized and the benefits maximized? Does the well-being of the participant take precedent over the, the, the uh, principal investigator's interest? Are the vulnerable groups protected? Are those who might benefit recruited equitably? And then, whatever else you think of, of course. But each time you have a meeting, try to continue to include one component of teaching in it to keep reviewing what they've learned. And if you ever get a new member, you know, then they get up to date pretty soon. So, like, one meeting, maybe you just talk about consent forms. Look, these are really hard. Everybody has trouble with this. Your students all have trouble. Then you as reviewers have trouble because you don't notice things that are missing. Remember to go through that checklist. Pay attention, you know. This is what we mean by this. This is what we mean by this. Here's some examples. Just to reinforce what you've taught them already. That will make a lot of difference because some of your members they're going to jump on board and catch on and really get it really quickly. Some of them are eager to help, but they're really too busy, or it's not a priority, and they're going to lag behind, and then it kind of makes them not as interested, I think. Um, others, sometimes the community members that aren't as medical health-oriented, sometimes they just don't get some of the stuff quite as quickly because it's not their realm that they've been dealing with. Um, others will right away get it. Like we used to have a community member that was an HIV patient back about eight, nine years ago when um, things with HIV treatment were so different and there was still such a huge, huge stigma because it was a death sentence. You, they couldn't get the medicine. They couldn't afford it if they could get it. And so that HIV patient being one of the community members was very helpful because a lot of people wanted to study HIV. And you really needed her and her to say this would be offensive to an HIV patient. You can't really do that, or this is okay. And so it was very helpful. But on the other hand, because her education level was like primary school, a lot of the things that we talked about were so over her head, you know, she couldn't participate. Yet we tried to really reinforce how important she was on the committee for what she did do. So it's really a, a balancing act. So I wanted to just close by explaining a little bit about why we started an IRB. So our health system in Cameroon, it's under the Baptist Church, and we have uh, six hospitals, like 50 health centers now, and, no, 35 health centers and 50 primary health care posts, like community, you know what you call it. We used to call it primary health care. I don't know what they call it now. Community stuff. Yeah, with very low-level trained people that aren't nurses that give medicine for 10 most common diseases or whatever. So it's a big system, and it's spread over I, six provinces, yeah. something. Um, but primarily in about 
four of the provinces or five. Yeah, well, I guess, no, I can't say that. Anyway, six provinces. So in 2001, okay, the hospital I work at is in Bingo, but I used to live at Bonso, the other big hospital. And at Bonso, we have a training school for nurses, lab techs, pharmacy techs, things like that. And in 2000 or 2001, a group of five or six uh, students from a school in the province capital came to the hospital and they said, they went to the lab and they said, we want to do this survey and find out about people that have HIV. And they had their little questionnaire that they were going to ask all these people these questions. They were like a bunch of them, the students. And the lab guy's like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, this is kind of a, these people have something that has a lot of stigma. I don't think you can just go ask them questions. Anyway, I don't know exactly the process, but it finally got to the director of the school. And so she wrote to our big health director and it's like, we told them they couldn't do it. And we think we need some policy and we need some guidelines because how do we stop someone from doing research that we think would be unethical? And we don't even have training. I mean, how do we even decide that? And so um, at that time, there happened to be a volunteer from U.S., a couple of them, that were coming once a year, maybe even twice a year at that time, working mostly with um, mother-child health and then later with HIV prevention and things. And two of these three people, a doctor and a nurse, had been had run IRBs back in the U.S. Uh, on Indian Reservation, and so they are the ones who came and helped start our IRB. So we had two people with gobs and god like 18 and 10 years each experience on an IRB and sometimes chairing the IRB. So. That was super, super helpful, and every time they would have a meeting would be only when one or both of those people would be in the country. To, they weren't the chair, but they guided it very strongly, and it helped a lot. And then our, our health director, too, got trained um, in, was it North Carolina? Somewhere. I think at Chapel Hill, there was some kind of program. We had a couple of people that went there for Fogarty grants, with Fogarty grants, and did uh, public health. Anyway, so beyond that, that's all I know about the very, very beginning. So it was 2007. So I'd been back in Cameroon for three years, and the chairperson was going on home assignment, and I was asked to take over the chairperson position, and I hadn't even ever been on an IRB, so it was a bit of a stretch, but um, I had a lot of help, and got my training, and we have muddled through. It's, uh, I will say, I said at the beginning, don't do it unless you really need it, because it's a lot of work. Um, That's true. It's also very interesting, and if you'd like to help students, you can end up helping them with their protocols a lot just because it comes across your desk even though that's not your real job as the IRB but it's really important that somebody is reviewing these studies before they happen because um, at least in our country the university advisors are not doing it they get paid money for advising each student but I don't even think they read their protocols truthfully I think they just sign the paper there must be exceptions, but I think they have so many students that it's just overwhelming and they can't or don't. Okay, we wanted to have some time for questions, so I think we do. How can I answer questions that I didn't get to? Yeah. Yeah, my, I meant to say in the beginning and I forgot. My background is medical anthropology. Uh, 
in cultural anthropology. So my research had something to do with health. But that, I don't know how much that got me there, but yeah, I have an interest in it. Mm-hmm. My husband is the, is the, uh, the director of the internal medicine program. So I'm there at the hospital and around the residence a lot. Yeah. Did you have a question? Okay. Mine? It was on the relationship of the parents' education, especially the mother's education, with childhood, under five, morbidity and mortality in a little village, mm-hmm. Cameroon. The biggest thing it will do for you is that if there's any NIH grants or anything like that that other institutions are using, you can make it part of that money. Right. As far as what it will do for you financially and trying to get it through. Um, without that, without an IRB or something to that equivalent, you literally, they can't They can't participate. Yeah. I think that's true. So, mm-hmm. No, well, we've never got that yet. Um, if it was a very big grant, that would be possible. But mostly that wouldn't go to one hospital, but more to a health system. Like, we have grants like that. We have money like that in our system, but not, it's not somebody just doing research at our hospital. Um, There's not even street names. There's no street names. Yeah. It's really hard when you're trying to do your stuff, too. But anyway, uh, what it allows you to do is it allows you as a researcher in the United States to set a contract out to this organization, mm-hmm. which will then send out people who can go to those places. Um, what was the guy's name? The guy who comes all the time for the Burkett's lymphoma. Yeah, Peter Hesling. Yeah, he, he had, he'd send out our nurses with a GPS and because they couldn't tell where these people were, right? Because they're in the bush. And so they would go out and take a photo of the house and take a photo of the patients, of the mom, because it was the child who had the briquettes, and then uh, do satellite um, addresses for these people. And so it was the only way to track them down, make sure that the child got the medication, got the follow-up, and it uh, saved Okay, she asked how much it costs. Yeah. I'm so supposed to be answering the, uh, repeating these questions. There's no fees for the registrations. Um, we charge a fee to review somebody's protocol, and we just recently upped it. Um, but we, so we charge students uh, equal to about $15, which is a lot of money there. And if they, but if they work for our system, it's like ten dollars. Is that right? Um, no. If if they're if they're one of our employees or students, it's twenty dollars. And if they're other students, it's about sixty dollars. But for funded studies like that has outside big money, then we charge like three hundred dollars to review it. And they pay it just like that. They don't even blink an eye. So I have no idea what they pay in the U.S. to get it done. There must be a lot more because they don't even hesitate. It's a lot more, yeah. Yeah. The training materials were free. We, we don't pay the people. We don't pay the people that are members. 
but the ones that are employees, you know, it's kind of seen as part of their job, but truthfully, I think they do a lot of the work after hours because they can't get it done otherwise. The people that are not connected with our institution, they get a little honorarium every time and pay their transport. And the different hospitals that send the members to the, the meeting pay their transport to get them there, and we feed them when they're there. We feed them breakfast before the meeting starts, then we feed them lunch, a big lunch. Yeah. I don't see those papers, so I don't even know how it comes out. But that's why we started charging a fee to review the protocols. Okay, she's asking to turn around. We ask our members that they should be able to review it. They've agreed to review the protocol within two weeks that we send it to them. And they're supposed to tell us if they see that they can't. They don't always. They don't always even acknowledge they got it. We have problems with a couple of them, and we just keep working on it because we need their expertise. Um, and then... So we tell, the, we tell the students or the researchers that it will take a month, at least a month. That's if it's expeditable. If we can't expedite it, they have to wait till the next meeting. Or in rare occasions, we might send an email to all the members telling them about it, telling them who's reviewed it, what are the issues, why can't we expedite it, and are they feeling they have enough information to vote on it, yes or no. A little bit, a little bit. We've had, we've had students come in, um, or maybe they're working for some organization, and they got some permission from somebody, and they think they can just come in and start questioning our staff or our patients about with their little questionnaires. And then somebody will catch them and say, um, excuse me, you can't do that. You have to get permission. And then they get real upset and pushy and... And we tell them it'll be at least three weeks or four weeks before we can give your approval. We try. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes they'll just leave and go somewhere else because they're so behind schedule. Students and researchers are always behind. So they always wanted their approval last week. That's just how it is. Any other questions? Okay, I think our time is just about up. Thank you so much. I hope it was helpful.